0: Choices.
1: Our voices, are our choices. The Feminist Podcast from the Heinrich Bull Foundation. Hey, I'm Sammy Blassingame, and welcome back to A Pathway Towards Feminist Global Collaboration. This is episode two of our five-part series, so if you have not listened to episode one yet, please go back and make sure you check it out. This episode, we are continuing to explore how feminist approaches can challenge the current development narrative as a response to Germany and other national governments beginning to implement what they are calling feminist development policy. It's still unclear, though, what exactly this will consist of. A straightforward definition of feminism is a commitment to transforming power relations between genders. But as we learned last episode, feminism can mean many different things in different contexts. What we believe is essential is that feminist principles challenge the social structures that have enabled various modes of oppression for far too long. But as we also learned last episode, the international development sector has a very problematic history. So will transforming the same structures as feminist be enough to change them? Yeah. We don't think so. International development must get to the core of the injustices it seeks to eliminate. So rather than the concept of feminism becoming an add-on or another mainstreamed requirement that we set for others, we want to seize this opportunity to create a visionary and transformative redefinition of development, one that is rooted in honesty, critical self-reflection, solidarity, and anti-oppression as well as social, environmental and economic justice. We call it feminist global collaboration. Here is Srishti Bashpi, one of our guests from episode 1, reflecting on the power that lies within the concept of development as it is traditionally practiced.
2: So the kind of a development project, at least um, borrowed from the West, um, that we see also here in South Asia, India, is that this idea that we have to have development at all costs, um, be it human cost, be it nature cost, be it at um, livelihood cost, anything but we want development. And this conception of what is development is is never people's conception of development it is it's elites who decide people who have power decide what is development for for a large number of people
1: so in this episode as another example of why feminist global collaboration is needed we are discussing the concept of knowledge as power You'll hear from activist Aisha Siddiqua, scholar Desiree Chola, and lawyer Elvia Pablo about some of the ways in which knowledge and power have shown up in their work, and what the development sector can learn from different struggles in order to push for change. We'll be talking about and questioning things such as the ways in which we value different forms of knowledge, how that upholds power dynamics, and why understanding the history of the development sector is key towards shifting the paradigm within which it is practiced. So, where to start? Well, many feminist and post-development activists and scholars, including our guest, point out that the field of development is structured by a very colonial idea that Western societies are the norm, and others are not merely different but deficient. This is something that Dr. RMZI discussed with us in episode one. He says it creates what he calls a geographical distribution of problem-solving knowledge, meaning that in orthodox development practice, developmental problems are believed to be located in the so-called global south, while the knowledge to solve these problems exists in the so-called global north. This neglects the expertise of the majority of people on this planet. The idea that societies in the global north are already developed prevents many instances in which the north can learn from the south. One example of this is the concept of capacity development, a term that was only introduced after critique that capacity building was unidirectional. But both terms reflect a process of transferring knowledge, skills, and solutions from the North to the South. Rarely do we ever see this in reverse. This hierarchical flow of developmental knowledge highlights the problem of whose knowledge is recognized, but also what kind. The development sector tends to rely on technical measurements of social and environmental problems, which leaves little room for the complexity and nuance that exists within our lives. What we may think of as, quote, objective measurements influence and limit how we understand problems, as well as their potential solutions. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to our first guest. Desiree Achola, a long-term practitioner in the international development sector, who joins us from the UK, where she is currently based.
0: Hi, my name is Desiree Achola. I'm a social impact consultant with Inanity Bonier Advisors and a PhD student uh, with the Southwest and Wales Doctoral Training Partnership at the University of Southampton. I've been an international development practitioner pretty much all my life, before I actually knew international development was a sector.
1: Desiree shared with me that she spent every summer of her childhood returning home to Kenya, where her father is from, or Burundi, where her mother is from, to help her family with community projects that we might liken to development, although that was not how she understood it at the time. More on this later, but through these experiences as well as further education and professional endeavors, Desiree has observed the development sector both from within and outside of it. And so I was curious about the type of knowledge that she sees dominating in this space.
0: I think the knowledge that does have power in this space is the technical knowledge and that I can say in very many organizations uh, that I've worked with um, that to valorize the technical knowledge, how, then? this can extend from anything, from how many, how how big of a sentence can you string together with as many acronyms as possible, right? To how much can you, distill what seems organic and human to a matrix, a very neat and tidy table, um very few appendices and to see that type of knowledge being valued um especially in a lot of places where interpersonal communication and you know layers of understanding and trust are how yes you <laughs> make change and build knowledge um, not with any and tidy matrix it does seem like there is a uh, incongruence between <laughs> the type of impact being sought the type of knowledge that's being used to achieve that impact and who has power in determining what type of knowledge is used? In as much as it relates to the international development sector, I guess a feminist critique talking, well, yes, about knowledge and power in the sector is that it does tend to be siloed into how well are women doing on X outcomes. And because I I do believe that there is so much reliance on your matrices and your quantitative metrics that it doesn't allow for describing the nuances, putting somebody's identity and their outcomes in life solely based on how they are gendered. I feel like that is not enough in feminist practice of international development. And so I think it would, yeah, I think it could do a lot more to understand how different layers of people's identities not just intersect with each other, but affect these outcomes that are so important.
1: Now, of course, over the years, many practitioners have recognized and seek to correct this type of siloed analysis. But Desiree makes a great point of intersectional perspectives largely missing in the sector. And it turns out the disaggregated data, which she is pointing to, was implemented in development practice largely for accountability purposes, to be sure programs address the issues of women or youth, for example, more specifically, But there's power in deciding which type of data is collected, how it's analyzed, and what it's used for. And also, for whom is this accountability directed towards? Data is often collected for reporting back to funders. But how often are the learnings gained from these monitoring and evaluation processes actually integrated into future projects? And how are they incorporating feedback from the communities they are meant to serve? Either way, the ways in which data is identified and collected has led to the establishment of institutions capable of generating this type of knowledge. Institutions that are very much ingrained in a Eurocentric perception of the world. And it has ultimately alienated those who bring much-needed alternative modes of operation, thinking, and analysis into this field of work. Our second guest, Aisha Siddika, has had experience with this. She is a human and environmental rights advocate, active with the youth-led coalition Polluters Out. And today, she joins us from her home in Coney Island, New York.
2: My name is Aisha Siddika. I'm Pakistani American. I moved to the states around the age of six, but uh, my family and heritage. An entire extended family is in Pakistan in a village called Jang. And I come from a long line of land and water defenders.
1: Given the current crisis in Pakistan, where a third of the country is underwater and 33 million people are displaced due to climate-induced flooding, my conversation with Aisha was understandably framed in the context of environmental and climate justice. The climate crisis is one of the major challenges facing life on this planet, which means development structures have also shifted to include so-called climate-smart solutions. Within this context, I asked Aisha what came to her mind when thinking of the intersections of knowledge, power, and the environment.
2: In climate spaces, we talk the language of science to the extent and perhaps to get people to feel like there is no politics behind it, that it affects all of us the same manner. And that's why science is held to this high regard of like above any sort of biases. But you can't go to native and rural communities and start talking in carbon emissions. That does not resonate, it does not make sense. And so it's created a very odd mechanism with which climate activists are operating too. And legislation is being written and these conferences are being held because they are so removed from reality, my reality, my people's reality. its I oftentimes feel like um, it's cognitive dissonance because things are happening in these Western <laughs> European conference rooms with literally from the structure internally, like the architecture to the way that people are talking. That just makes me feel like even more of an outsider, if that makes sense. It does make sense.
1: And we will be talking more about representation and the role it plays in the context of feminist global collaboration in episode five of this series. But for now, we can at least attempt to address acts of marginalization by remembering to always question who is producing knowledge, who is being excluded from the production of knowledge, and what has this got to do with power? In environmental and climate justice circles, we talk about breaking down binaries of how we perceive the world. The binary, or viewing the world as us versus the other, originated in Enlightenment thinking and became popular in European philosophy as a dominant mode of understanding the world. But these binaries were created through sexist, racist, colonialist mindsets. Binaries such as white versus non-white, human versus the rest of nature— Men versus women, developed versus underdeveloped. They all created hierarchies of what was valuable and what was less valuable, and therefore justifiably exploitable. And well, the same goes for how we think about whose and what type of knowledge counts as valid or applicable. Aisha makes this clear by commenting on how the Eurocentric perspective has molded our relationship towards the environment and led us to climate catastrophe.
2: Climate change is not gender blind. It is not race blind. It is not class blind. It uses the existing frameworks of social hierarchy to further cause suffering. I mean, I can go into a very deep dissertation about how colonial mindsets have left their impacts on communities like mine, and they've changed. Like, Native communities are not exempt from this either, and neither are rural people, because we've embodied that kind of mindset we have gotten to the point of like potential human extinction because of the colonial patriarchal framework like i can sit here and very empirically tell you it failed so we have to try the opposite we have to try the reverse and the reverse would be what is antithetical to patriarchy what is antithetical To colonialization, give the people who have survived extinction after extinction the means to provide a solution to survive this extinction. Because everything has been against us for centuries, and we're still here. The reason we're here is not because we've followed or used the master's tools. It's actually because we have followed and used a kind of empathy a resilience and gentleness that we learn from nature. And it's very different than the kind of resilience perhaps even being mentioned in the global north.
1: So what you've heard so far this episode constitutes the first aspect of knowledge as power that we believe needs to be addressed within a practice of feminist global collaboration. And what we're trying to highlight isn't that Indigenous and other knowledges are automatically better than Eurocentric knowledge. We're not romanticizing anything. But what we would like to bring awareness to is the ways in which we, intentionally or not, place higher value on very technical and standardized knowledge. Related to this is a second aspect of knowledge as power. The many forms of knowledge that we are excluding by valuing certain types of knowledge over others. Our third guest, Elvira Pablo, has had some experience with this, and she joins us from Oaxaca.
3: I am Elvira Pablo from the Ayuk Indigenous Peoples from Oaxaca, Mexico. I work as the Policy and Member Engagement Officer for Latin America and the Caribbean at Girls Not Rights, the Global Partnership to End Child Marriage, and I am an activist dedicated to work uh, specifically with women and girls, and I have experience working with uh, community-based organizations and also regional networks of Indigenous women. So I'm very happy to have this um, uh, conversation with you. Thank you.
1: Elvira is also a lawyer, and one of the networks that she's active in is called RAI, a network of female Indigenous lawyers. She's also part of the National Coordination of Indigenous Women, known as Konami. And during our conversation, she shared that being humble about one's work is quite common in the communities that she's part of, and that she's seen how it influences power dynamics. This is because how we perceive someone's level of expertise or capabilities is often highly dependent on how well they can articulate it.
3: And that, I don't know if that's something cultural, but sometimes for people that I know, for example, no, that are also from similar backgrounds, from indigenous communities, it's difficult to, to explain the things that we do in a way that can sound attractive to you because of the trying to be, how do you say, the humility, no? They do it very humbly. And then people from outside not not necessarily notice all the great work that they are doing. But then when you go and know them, then you say, this organization should be getting funding. They are doing great work. You know? And I think there are a lot of people from the communities or from organizations that are even like developing a lot of new ideas, projects, or doing innovation. But they don't necessarily have the same opportunities or even the resources to to prove their theories or to implement their projects. Another
1: aspect of power dynamics in this context is the way that we tend to place higher value on typical forms of knowledge production, like research papers or books, which means many alternative forms and productions of knowledge fail to be properly recognized.
3: It's very common that many Indigenous women that I know and that I admire and they have a lot of uh, knowledge like in their minds and when we talk and when we do workshops and like when we work together, we can notice that they have a lot of knowledge about many things, but then they don't have the time to write, for example, no, because they are so busy doing activism, accompanying processes, doing the legal defense. I don't know, no? like doing many work at the community level that it's necessary and that it's urgent that they don't have time to sit down and write and then share. So that's something interesting that when we have some friends or people from outside that talk with us or that hear us in a conference or in a workshop and they say, why don't you write a book? Why don't you publish something? And no, and I think that it's very related not only for the, how you value the knowledge but also who has more opportunities and resources to implement what they are saying.
1: Valuing a certain type of knowledge and the standardized production of that knowledge should be seen as a hidden form of power, through which alternative choices are limited. Less powerful people and their concerns are excluded, and the rules of the game are set to be biased against certain people and issues. The implications of this can be felt in how we organize society, where we place importance and how we choose to respond to different crises, like the climate crisis. Here's Aisha again with some thoughts on this.
2: Climate science and the people that are writing about it, oddly enough, are from the people of the global north. The people being affected are people of the global south. This also extends to legal um, procedures that are taking place. Lawsuits are occurring in the global north. The experts that are talking about these issues that are writing books that are actually garnering fame further knowledge are coming from the global north, and it is odd, because that knowledge that they've acquired is not their original knowledge, if that makes sense. It's a kind of extraction, and they need case studies, and the case studies happen to be us. So, in again, in the context of Pakistan recently, there was flooding, and we have native peoples who fundamentally understand why there was flooding. What I saw was scientists or And not even scientists, just climate activists from the north, if they had written a tweet about it, that garnered more attention than if a brown person from the area said the same thing. And it's almost as if we don't give integrity to the understanding of the earth that black and brown people have. But the second a white person validates that information, oh my god, it's totally and completely right. Like, that makes sense. And it is so frustrating to watch that unfold because even when we're suffering, we need a white person to validate that for the world to care.
1: And in this way, knowledge becomes violence. Grada Columba, an interdisciplinary artist and author, speaks about this in her work. She says, it's not that we have not been speaking, but rather our voices, through a system of racism, have been either systematically disqualified as invalid knowledge or else represented by whites, who ironically become the experts on ourselves. In discussing whose and what type of knowledge is valued over others, Elvira also had a story to share, a story that exemplifies knowledge as violence through a very common practice within knowledge hierarchies that we are accustomed to.
3: There was something in the news in Oaxaca that some university, I don't remember if it was from the USA, but some university from another country came to an indigenous community and took some samples and were doing research on the corn, on the native corn of that community. And then they went outside and they were working with that information, but without the consent of the community.
1: Elvira is referring to a story from 2019 about researchers at UC Davis in California taking samples of a very rare nitrogen-fixing maize species and failing to credit the findings to the isolated community from which they found it. This is important to recognize because the repackaging of indigenous land knowledge within modern terms such as permaculture or agroecology is prominent in development circles.
3: So you have knowledge at, at the local level that people have been taking care and growing the corn, but then can someone from outside can come and take information and go out with that, but without working with the community. You know? so that's an example on how the knowledge is in the local community, but then someone from outside just come and, and took it. You know? So I think that's also something, an element. You know, that it's not only the knowledge, but it's also who has the resources to use it or to promote it or to take it. This phenomenon of
1: knowledge extraction, and therefore knowledge as violence, is the third aspect of knowledge as power we'd like to address in this episode. Of course, there are ethics protocols in place that seek to avoid such injustices, but still, such practices continue and exist within the field of development, too. Communities like the ones our guests come from are subjected to extraction of knowledge and other resources— rather than genuine attempts at building long-term relationships. Relationships that could constitute more feminist global collaboration.
2: The people who have lived off the land have an innate relationship to it, and you cannot curate that. The reason being, when you plant the seed, when you get your hands dirty, you develop a relationship with it. You are feeding the land and it feeds you, even in terms of animal agriculture when you grow um, or you raise sheep or cattle or whatnot, there is a relationship because you go give it food that cannot be curated in labs or places distant from it. And oddly enough, people who don't have that relationship, we give them more integrity. And the reason why I'm, I'm emphasizing on this relationship is It changes the way that you think. It changes your ethos in a manner, too. It slows you down. And it it gives you a sense of humility, even, because without this, you cannot survive. This
1: humbling relationship that Aisha speaks about is something many of us in over-resourced societies have come to lose touch with. We have embodied a culture of consumption, efficiency, and extraction fueled by capitalism, rather than a culture of care and reciprocity. And we see this reflected in how development is structured and how progress is measured. And this translates to the ways in which we gain, interpret, and apply knowledge, which leads us to the fourth aspect of knowledge as power we would like to address with you. Who is actually doing development? And to what end? Let's hear again from Desiree Chola, the PhD candidate and social impact consultant that you heard from at the start of this episode.
0: Growing up um, as a first generation American, home was always in Africa, whether that was Burundi or Kenya, that's where we referred to as home. And so going back to build a school or build a church or work on these other projects that my parents were always involved in always having us spend the summers back home. Um, I didn't realize that other people were doing this type of work without actually having a connection to the people and the places that they were working. I constantly refer to it, are you doing development on a field trip or do you have a stake in what happens in these places? And so with that, if you don't know, then I think then you're missing a lot of what you're actually trying to do.
1: This extends to the inability and sometimes outright refusal of certain development practitioners to acknowledge the colonial history of development, which results in that history being repeated. Observing this is what led Desiree to create DecolonizedDevelopment.org, a new project she recently launched.
0: One of the, the ways that DecolonizedDevelopment.org came about was it, I was in the process of actually writing a paper about how the international development sector has ties to colonialism at the same time that the colonies were gaining independence that the international development sector birth. And so I was reading manual from uh, 1919, uh, Colonial Administration in uh, Tropical Africa, essentially a manual for, um, yeah, these British colonial administrators coming to Kenya, Uganda, and reading actual, you know, these captains who are giving instructions to these children, essentially coming over to rule. There is no poverty here. This is what they're saying. There is no poverty in Kenya, Uganda. If we, need to, if we want these, the locals to pay taxes to us, we have to take away what they use. We have to take away what they need. And so seeing these mechanisms just described so mundanely, just as a matter of fact, and yeah, seeing how this was just not even a whisper of an acknowledgment in the sector today trying to address these poverty and education gaps and poor health outcomes. All of these things were not being connected to how they came about.
1: And that connection is very important. The realization that colonialism was essentially justified through the fabrication of disadvantage and that the development sector carries on that legacy by encouraging so-called experts from faraway places to come in and solve problems in a place that they have little to no connection to is a strong perspective from which to practice more feminist global collaboration. We'll get back to that in just a moment, but first... In my conversation with Elvira, we also discussed the experience of outsiders deemed experts coming into a community. And I wondered what she's observed in that context when it comes to power dynamics.
3: The voices of the communities are not necessarily valued at the same level that the people that come from outside, no? And I think that's that's something that I have noticed in many different spaces. Even if there is a space that is trying to be friendly, or horizontal I have noticed that there is always power dynamics and I think that's something important to recognize and then find ways to transform it. like even if you have people from the same community that are doing excellent work and that can bring some proposals for some reason sometimes people can think that people from outside have have more knowledge or have um, I don't know, like maybe bring it's bringing other opportunities or something different, no?
1: Exactly. As Aisha pointed out earlier, rural and Native communities are not exempt from the impact of colonial mindsets. And of course, there are plenty of practitioners who know how to navigate these situations mindfully. But if you observe closely— You'll see that even in spaces where these power dynamics are acknowledged, it can happen that we subconsciously shift our attention to those in the room who speak fluently, with an authoritative tone, and with the vocabulary of technical, seemingly, quote, objective knowledge that we value. In our interview, I asked Desiree to go back and reflect on what she had said earlier about going home to Kenya or Burundi to build schools or do other community projects with her family, and then realizing that people doing similar work in the area had little to no connection to the actual place and its people. This is what she had to say.
0: What's coming to mind with that question is um, the University of Montana, and that's where i actually did my undergrad doing um minor in international development studies thinking oh i got this this will be great i'll be around people who've done this type of work before and you know great 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 and i'm in these classes and i was surrounded by people who had never left montana never mind been to any other country and here they are workshopping log frames and, you know, theories of change about how X country or X organization can improve their impact or whatever kind of outcomes that they were trying. It was shocking to me how much confidence people had in determining what was the best outcome, the right thing to do, or the wrong, just wrong choices, for places that they'd never been to, languages that they didn't speak in these places and people that they had never met. Forget even watching a movie or a television show about these places or naming even the president or prime minister. They were determining what should happen for families. And of course this is, you know, a minor and undergrad and so you can talk about power in that context, but there is very no, I am 100% sure that several people in this program went straight to a master's, straight to an international development organization, and proceeded to continue that work from there.
1: Desiree's experiences show how necessary it is that individuals self reflect about their role and position of power within the sector. But equally important, and something we want to push for with this podcast. Is the self reflection of countries who are currently in the position of donors, as Desiree points out, practicing feminist development policy does not erase the historical developments and the defining role that donors have had in bringing us into the current status quo.
0: For all of the, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, you know, new graduates who are going into diplomacy and you know working at you know, um, uh, FCDO or, um, BMZ or whoever these, you know, organizations are that if they were to explore the role that, uh, their governments had in creating the conditions that they're trying to, you know, fix, um, that their work might, (laughs) yeah, their motivations might be very different. Um, And I think that's where you have a lot of power, too, really in being able to ignore that, right? If you're able to ignore Germany's history in Namibia and simply say, no, I'm just working with this organization trying to help wells get dug, then that's power, being able to ignore all of that history and simply focus on what happened as soon as you, you paid attention to it. And so how do we decolonize this work, which is to say, redress and repair these colonial legacies that exist in in this sector?
1: For us, this is a strong question and the correct kind of question we should be asking if we want to talk about feminist global collaboration in the context of knowledge as power. So, to close, let's hear from Elvira and Aisha on what they think we need to be doing in order to move toward decolonization within feminist global collaboration.
3: In terms of values, I would say empathy, I would say respect, I would say, like, also being honest, no? And also, like, being transparent. And I think also this, um, working collectively, no? Like, I think that's, that's some, are some values that we need to always keep in mind. If we want to, our work to be meaningful, we need to see that it's really impacting and benefiting, no? The lives of the, the people that we are working for, no? But also it's important to not see that people that we're working for only as beneficiaries, no? Or only as the people that we are, doing something for them but also we can do the, that with them no like planning implementing evaluating everything no i think that that's some that's another key element to work together like yeah alongside not like just i'm working for you but i'm working with you no? so i think it could give us an opportunity to understand and to have a different relationship that it's not a relationship that it's only being extractive, but a relationship that can be, harmonic, no, and that can allow um, us to continue living here in, the, in this planet that is being destroyed now, by by big companies, no, and but but even sometimes by ideas that are, but are that are ideas of bringing development, but are bringing the opposite. We
2: actually have to go back to the people who have survived threat after threat and ask them how they did it. In a patriarchal society that is like Pakistan, post-war, drone attacks, terrorism, climate change, which affects women most, we learn how to create after destruction. And we learn how to be resilient by by giving and, and the fight is, it's less like the fight that is kind of applauded in the global north, which is theatrical, but it is more, you keep showing up for your children and you keep showing up for your family and you don't let it break you. And that quiet resilience is what has kept us alive I I think we have to unlearn everything from the survival of the fittest to like Adam Smith's idea of, of capital gain and how we progress. They're all coming from men who think that the way that you survive is like hoarding resources and fighting each other because there's a limited amount. That scarcity mindset has done us damage. That idea of like you are... Pitting people against people has done us damage. It's not working. It's failing. We have to forget all of that and start new.
1: With their strong words and valuable insights, our guests this episode have illustrated how changing our relationship to knowledge can help us move towards feminist ways of global collaboration. One last thing we'd like to acknowledge, as Dr. RMZI called it in episode one, is our part in the cycle of development. At the beginning of this episode, you heard me explain what we in the Emerging Network define as feminist global collaboration. You also heard me say many other well-known words and concepts to describe it. So I want to draw attention to the fact that nothing we are saying in this series is necessarily new. There have been many relevant and impactful voices who don't necessarily call their theories, perspectives, and recommendations feminist, as we do here, but whose practices are based on feminist principles. The development sector and beyond must begin to genuinely listen and learn from these voices. Many of the same concepts and solutions we're outlining here have been talked about in other ways by many different people for decades but the moral and political will to actually implement them is lacking. It is our hope that this work and the work that follows will support us all in seeking collaborations that allow us to move away from the creation of knowledge and frameworks for development in exchange for the creation and recognition of knowledge for justice. While we touched on many aspects of knowledge as power within this episode, there are many more we simply couldn't fit in. Please remember that we'll be publishing recommendations along with this episode in which we will attempt to include some of the topics we could not discuss here in full. We hope these suggestions for actions can help you and your colleagues within the sector take practical steps towards feminist global collaboration. You can find those at www.fairsharewl.org or www.bowl. That's b-o-e-l-l. dot d-e. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at fair underscore wl and at bowl. That's b-o-e-l-l underscore gender. Upcoming episodes will be on the topics of intersectionality, funding, and representation, so stay tuned. For now, as we will do for each episode, we would like to end with a quote by an activist, scholar, or practitioner. Today, that's with words by the very powerful Grada Columba from their 2016 performance of Decolonizing Knowledge. When they speak, it is scientific. When we speak it is unscientific. When they speak, it is universal. When we speak, it is specific. When they speak, it is objective. When we speak, it is subjective. When they speak, it is neutral. When we speak, it is personal. When they speak, it is rational. When we speak, it is emotional. When they speak, it's impartial. When we speak, partial. They have the facts. We have opinions. They have knowledge. We have experience. This has been a podcast of our voices, our choices, in the series Feminist Development Policy A Pathway Towards Feminist Global Collaboration. You can find this and other episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in the app of your choice. Help us spread the word by rating us or recommending us to others. You can also send us feedback and suggestions at podcast at bowl, that's B-O-E-L-L dot D-E. Audio for this podcast was produced by Gretsch and directed by me, your host, Sammy Blassingame, in collaboration with The Audio Collective. Thanks so much for listening and see you here next time.